Good morning. Hey, we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 32 this morning, if you want to open your Bibles. I'm going to read that in a moment. Jeremiah 32, towards the middle of your Bibles, you'll find Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Isaiah, then Jeremiah. So Jeremiah chapter 32. You know, we've prayed a couple times already, but let me, uh, let's pray one more time as we open God's word together. Gracious God, we honor you and we praise you this morning. And we thank you for the privilege we have to gather as a community and to lift your name on high, to reorient our hearts and our lives to you. Uh, And Lord, we pray now as we open your word that you would illumine your word, that you would open our hearts, um, give us ears to hear you and eyes to see you this morning. As a pastor, I'm so grateful for the times that I have to study your word. And this week in particular, I'm grateful for men like Walt Brugman and And Eugene Peterson, whose works were so helpful to me this week in preparation so that we can learn from their insights. And Lord, I just pray that you would uh, put all of that aside, though, so that we can hear from you, so that we can hear your words to us today. And um, Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work. As we hear these words this morning, it's in your precious and holy name that we do pray. Amen. Jeremiah 32, I'm going to read the first 15 verses for you. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? You say, This is what the Lord says, I am about to give this city into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape the Babylonians, but will certainly be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and will speak with him face to face and see him with his own eyes. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord. And if you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. And Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me, Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, Buy my field at Anathoth in the t- territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it. Buy it for yourself. And I knew this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, 
and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy, and I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and of the witnesses who had signed the deed and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the garden. And in their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe a strange place to go for a post-Easter message. It doesn't seem like much of a story on the face of it, does it? It's such an ordinary, everyday action. Even Jeremiah seems to see it that way. Um, Yeah, my cousin came to me, made a request, so I bought a field at Anathoth. He seems so matter-of-fact about it. Of course I bought the field, no big deal. Except that it is a big deal. This simple, everyday, ordinary event, buying a field, is a deliberate act of hope. Jeremiah was in a great deal of pain in this moment. And often when we face pain and suffering, we find it difficult, if not impossible, to make those deliberate acts of hope. As followers of Jesus, though, we must ask ourselves, how does the hope of the resurrection of Jesus allow me to make those deliberate acts of hope in my life? Hope must make its way from our heads down to our hearts and into our hands, into the everyday fabric of our lives. As Eugene Peterson writes, hope commits us to actions that connect us with God's promises. Hope should get down into your bones and into the normal, everyday, ordinary moments of your life. And for Jeremiah, that meant buying a field. So what does it mean for you? We need a little historical context to kind of understand what's happening at this moment in Jeremiah's life that I just read for us. In fact, I think we need to go actually a pretty long ways back to the beginning Because we have to remember that God has been on a rescue mission since the fall of mankind back in Genesis 3 to restore the world back to its original goodness that we observe when God created the world and everything in it. And that rescue mission began in Genesis 12 with the call of a man named Abraham. And God told Abraham that he would make him into a great nation, that people groups and even kings would descend from him. And sure enough, when we get to the book of Exodus, God did in fact create a nation that descended from him, the nation of Israel. Israel was called to be separate and distinct from all the nations so that they could in fact be a blessing to all the nations. And the whole story of the Old Testament is essentially a story of how the people of Israel failed to do just that. 
But even more than that, the Old Testament is the account of God's graciousness and his goodness towards his people despite their constant rebellion. It's a story of God's faithfulness, even as his people were never faithful. So fast forward now to where the book of Jeremiah picks up, and the nation of Israel is split in half. The northern kingdom has been essentially destroyed because of their unfaithfulness, and God used the Assyrian Empire to destroy the northern kingdom. The Assyrians were in power over the southern kingdom, Judah, as well for quite some time. Until the Babylonians came in and laid siege to Jerusalem, their capital city. The book of Jeremiah tells us of how far Judah had drifted from God. There was rampant social injustice in the land. Widows, orphans, and immigrants, the most vulnerable in the community, were being exploited by the most powerful. The leaders of the community lied and cheated others. The people committed idolatry by worshiping other gods. And in fact, the people of God were even sacrificing their own children to the gods of Canaan. The people were so far removed from God and his call on their lives. They were called to be a light to the nations, but they became like the nations. Israel had become the Canaanites. And so God would bring judgment on his people. If God doesn't judge sin, then he's not good and he's not just. And God certainly couldn't tolerate the gross sin that he was seeing in his people at this time. Who were meant to represent him to the world. So God used the horrible nation of Babylon to send his people into exile. Now by this point in the story in Jeremiah 32... Babylon had been in power for quite some time. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had been captured by the Babylonians and sent into exile along with the most prominent citizens of of Jerusalem and all of Judah. You know, people like Daniel and his friends we read about in the book of Daniel or Ezekiel the prophet went in that first wave of the exile. But Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, appointed a guy named Zedekiah to be a sort of puppet king over those who were left behind in Jerusalem and Judah, the poor and the middle class, people like Jeremiah. Zedekiah didn't like Jeremiah very much. They butt heads on a number of occasions, mostly because Zedekiah couldn't face the truth that Jeremiah proclaimed, that Babylon would ultimately destroy Jerusalem and the temple and send everyone else into exile as well including Zedekiah and his family. And Zedekiah didn't appreciate Jeremiah's message, so he threw Jeremiah in prison. We don't know how long Jeremiah's been in prison, and we don't, I don't think Jeremiah knew how long he would be there. Zedekiah had been king for 10 years at this point, and Babylon had been in power that whole time. The situation couldn't be more hopeless for Jeremiah. But then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, as it often did. And this time, the Lord said, your cousin is going to visit you. And he's going to ask you to buy his field that he owns in your hometown of Anathoth. And I want you to buy it and make sure there are witnesses. And sure enough, here comes his cousin Hanamel offering Jeremiah his field. 
Now, we need to pause just for a moment to really grasp what's going on here. For starters, let's remember that Jeremiah is in prison. Do you know anybody wearing an orange jumpsuit for the foreseeable future who's looking to make a sizable land purchase? Secondly, Anathoth is on the outskirts of Jerusalem, where the Babylonians have been in control for over a decade, and with no no signs of that changing anytime soon. And not to mention, not long ago, the people of Anathoth were plotting to kill Jeremiah. So why is Jeremiah's cousin selling him this land in the first place? Leviticus 25 uh, lays out the law for selling land. You're supposed to try to keep it in the family. So you begin with your closest relatives and work your way down the list. Now, generally speaking, families at this time were quite large. So we have to imagine that Hanamel likely had siblings, and many of them. So he would have started with his oldest brother and worked his way down the list. And when they all said no, he'd probably go to his uncle's and work his way down the list. And then maybe, perhaps, eventually, he'd get to the cousins. And we don't know where Jeremiah fell on Hanamel's list of potential buyers, but we can guess that Hanamel had spoken to quite a few people and received quite a few no's in that process. Just trying to pawn off his land on some sucker who's willing to buy it. He's like that relative or friend of yours who always has like a pyramid scheme going or a get-rich-quick scheme going. And he's just working his way through the list and saying, boy, do I have a deal for you. Three words, location, location, location. So let's sum this up. Jeremiah is in prison by order of his king with no prospects of getting out. Babylon has been in power for over a decade and no signs of that changing anytime soon. They're currently pounding on the city walls. And Jeremiah's cousin wants to sell Jeremiah a piece of land an enemy-occupied territory in a town where people are trying to kill him. Now, I'm no financial whiz, but that has got to be the dumbest investment on the face of the planet. This is not the word of the Lord I would want to receive if I were Jeremiah. It is the most impractical action Jeremiah could take, absolutely ludicrous, if not for one important point. The end of verse 8 says, I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field at Anathoth. The people around him already thought he was crazy. They probably used one word to describe Jeremiah when he made this action. Fool. What a fool. Jeremiah would never plant a tree or plow a field, or prune a grapevine, or build a house on that land. There's a good chance that Jeremiah would never lay eyes on that land. So why did he do it? Because God told him to. And our hope in God commits us to actions that connect us with God's promises. And look at how Jeremiah's hope in God's promises leads to decisive actions. The steps that he takes are very deliberate. He weighs out the silver. He signs and seals the documents before witnesses and gives them to his assistant Baruch in the presence of more witnesses. And then Jeremiah says this, and let me read this again. Verse 13, 
And in their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. They're going to be there a while. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. Buy land. Get witnesses. Secure titles. Act in faith against the present data. The data is all Babylonian. But God speaks beyond Babylon to a new future. Houses Fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. God is not permanently abandoning his people. The day will come when this land and its people will flourish once again. And God says, Jeremiah, I want you to put your money where your mouth is. Buy this land. This act puts Jeremiah on public record saying, there is indeed life after Babylon. Hope commits us to actions that connect us with God's promises. So Jeremiah invests in God's promised future exactly when that future seems utterly hopeless. And we we may be tempted to think that if our circumstances don't match up with the message I'm hearing, then that message must not be true. Even if that message is from God or from God's word. Do you ever, ever have a difficult time believing God's promises in the Bible? Messages of hope and healing, restoration and renewal? Do you ever have doubts because your life circumstances seem to cry against those messages of hope? You know, sometimes our pain and suffering scream so loudly that they can drown out everything else in our lives. The reality of our circumstances can blind us to the greater reality of God's presence in our midst, especially when our circumstances involve great pain and suffering. Now, please don't think I'm minimizing anyone's pain and suffering here. The pain and suffering we face in this life, whatever it may be, physical pain and illness, grief, mental illness, estranged relationships, whatever it may be, that pain is real and it runs deep. And some of you are suffering right now in ways that I cannot comprehend. And I in no way wish to minimize that. But when I read Jeremiah 32, I see two realities at play. And this is important for us to see. The first reality is the very real conditions of Jeremiah's life in this moment. Prison, Babylonian captivity, the loss of his home and loved ones. He's persecuted as he faithfully proclaims God's word to these people who don't want to hear it. These are very real circumstances, but they aren't the only reality at play here. The most profound reality for Jeremiah wasn't that Babylonians were camped out on that field in Anathoth or that he was in prison for the foreseeable future, although he couldn't deny these things at all. They were staring him right in the face. 
Jeremiah sees that there's more to his circumstances than Babylonian hordes and prison walls. He sees that God is in his midst. Jeremiah sees that God is the most important reality with which he and the people around him had to deal. Now God's presence doesn't change Jeremiah's circumstances. But it changes Jeremiah's perspective on his circumstances. And our darkest moments, like these moments that Jeremiah faces here, teach us to look beyond the reality of our circumstances and to see the greater reality of the God who is present and in control of it all. As he sits in prison, Jeremiah recognizes that if God is the God of all nations, then Babylon is not here by accident. That God is using this evil nation to bring about his good intentions. That God must be using these circumstances in Jeremiah's life for Jeremiah's good. And Jeremiah is able to look beyond his suffering and take a deliberate step of hope. Now let's be clear here. When I speak of hoping, I'm not talking about wishing or hoping that it all works out. I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking And I'm certainly not suggesting that you ignore your circumstances. Jeremiah certainly didn't do that. I'm speaking about biblical hope. Christian hope grounded in the resurrection of Jesus who conquered death and who lives and reigns and intends to restore this whole world back to its intended goodness. And though it still baffles me to to think this, Jesus calls us to follow him and to join him in his rescue mission. And that's biblical hope. And biblical hope requires something of us. It's an act like buying a field in Anathoth. When we act in hope, we act on the conviction that God will complete his work. That he has begun even when the appearances, and maybe especially when the appearances, oppose it. Jeremiah's act of buying a field made the word of God visible to those around him. And it made the word of God visible to anyone who was looking for a way out of their chaotic despair into a life of hope in the one true God. Maybe for you it means making a financial decision that seems foolish on the surface and foolish to others, but one that God is calling you to make. Maybe for you it means a career choice that your friends or your parents might think is foolish, but you see God's hand preparing you and leading you in that direction. Maybe it means providing the one voice of sanity in a chaotic situation. For us, it meant sending our son, Jeremiah, to our neighborhood school, despite all the other options available to us. When we first moved into our neighborhood, Brookside Elementary was a priority school and at risk of closing its doors. And a new principal took over, and with the help of many dedicated teachers and staff, they began to see some real positive strides in that school. As we were thinking about where to send our kids to school, my wife Meryl connected with several other moms in the neighborhood, all of whom were considering sending their kids to Brookside. Now, I wish... I could take more credit for what happened next, but in reality, if not for Merrill and these moms, none of this would have happened. 
the more we looked into the school, the more convinced we became that we needed to do this. That maybe God was calling us to this. And on the face of it, we wondered, were we sacrificing too much? Would our kids get the education they needed? Would they fall behind? Don't we all want what's best for our kids? So why wouldn't we send them to the best of the best that we could find? On the face of it, it may not make sense. But I think all of our families viewed sending our kids to the neighborhood school as a deliberate act of hope. We want to make the word of God visible to those who might think us foolish and maybe even make a difference in our neighborhood. Who knows? The most practical thing that we can do is to hear what God says and to respond to him. Jeremiah knew that buying that field looked impractical and foolish. He knew it was unpopular, against public opinion, and against reason. He knew he would become the butt of his cousin's jokes, ridiculed by anyone who heard about it. But Jeremiah didn't buy the field to become popular. He didn't buy the field on the advice of his financial planner. He wasn't adding to his investment portfolio or planning for retirement. He bought it because God told him to. He was staking his hope in the promises of God. He bought the field for the most practical of reasons. He did it because he was convinced deep down in his soul that the pain and suffering and heartache that everyone in Jerusalem was experiencing, including himself, was being used by God to bring redemption to the people and restoration to the land. But I know that when you're experiencing that pain and suffering and heartache, taking a deliberate step towards anything right now seems impossible. I know of many people in our congregation who are in that boat right now. And some of you are facing medical challenges that have been going on for far too long and you wonder when it will end. Or maybe you're a caretaker of someone who's facing those challenges and you want more than anything to take the pain away, but you can't. Others are facing insurmountable grief that seems like it will never go away. And for those of you who are in great pain and suffering, maybe your deliberate act of hope is getting out of bed in the morning and putting one foot in front of the other when every other instinct in your body fights against it. And if that's all you can do right now, then you are honoring God as you wait in hope. And you are making the word of God visible to those around you. I want to read a quote from Eugene Peterson's book, Runs with Horses, and we'll close with this. Hope-determined actions participate in the future that God is bringing into being. These acts are rarely spectacular. Usually they take place outside of sacred settings, And almost never are they perceived to be significant by bystanders. It's not easy to act in hope because most of the immediate evidence is against it. As a result, we live in one of the most impractical societies the world has ever seen. If we are to live practically, 
We must frequently defy the impracticalities of our peers. It takes courage to act in hope. But it is the only practical action for, it is the only action that survives the decay of the moment and escapes the scrap heap of yesterday's fashion. To live in hope means to go against the stream of the way that most people live their lives. We are called to live contrary to the way things are in hope of what can be and will be by the grace of God. And for Jeremiah, that meant buying a field. So what does it mean for you? Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word to us. That speaks to each and every one of us wherever we are in our lives. For you, Lord, seek to bring hope to the hopeless. In fact, you are a God who majors in the hopeless. For when Jesus was dying on a cross, Lord, you took his body and you raised him from the dead. That when all seemed lost, when the enemy thought he had won, God, you stepped in and you raised Jesus from the dead. So you're a God that majors in the hopeless. And so God, we worship you and we honor you this morning because all of us in some way need hope. And not wishful thinking, not the power of positivity. We need hope that is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That because he lives, that we live And we live our lives abundantly through the power of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, I pray this morning that you would lift us up. That you would encourage us and strengthen us to face whatever it is that we have to face today and this week and in the weeks and months ahead. For you, God, are a God of hope. We thank you and we praise you, our Lord Jesus. And it's in your precious and holy name that we do pray this morning. Amen.